0: I was kind of lost in a way because I didn't have any friends. I wanted to be in the tower. Tower was like something. It's like a dream to be in a band like that. And it just was very discouraging and hurtful that with all the ability and all the talent that God has given us, that it was being wasted by getting loaded mm. because the getting loaded thing became the first thing. Music mm-hmm. was second. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I left. Because we were losing our, our thing. You know, mm-hmm. we were repeating ourselves. We were not nice to each other. It was like a little drug gang.
1: welcome to intersect radio where music faith and life converge with your host
0: aaron the a-train smith
2: welcome everybody to intersect radio thank you for all for tuning in um we've uh, been kind of um redoing things here at intertalk radio since the nam show um i hope you all were there and got to see some of the uh interviews and uh seminars we broadcasted it and broadcasted and um and uh did there at nam and if not you can find them on our site intertalkradio.com very informative um things about um music instrument retail and things like that and um, I'm back today uh, live in Living Color. And my guest today is the one and only Mr. David Garibaldi. David, thank you, sir. Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for being here, man. <laughs> this is like, uh, this is something I never dreamt about.
0: Me either. <laughs> <laughs> We're both in the same place.
2: <laughs> uh, so, I know you guys know who David Garibaldi is, so we won't go into that. But uh, Tower of Power is here in town. They've been here for two nights here in Nashville. And uh, I was at the show on Saturday night. It was a great show, man. Um, it was great to see you back in the band. See you Good back beer. on your throne. Good beer. Yeah, Good beer man. you for that. Yeah, you seem to have a uh, a renewed sense of something, you know, uh, just Fresh.
0: Well, when your life is almost taken away and then you survive it, it gives you a little different thing, right? <laughs> you know,
2: right. You're you're a blessed man. You're a blessed uh, man. Nobody's arguing about that. Yeah, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah, man, that's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. But um, we all know about your your drumming. Uh, abilities and um, all, all the things you've done for for the drumming community over your career, uh, but um, we don't know—at least I don't know—that much about your life, about David Garibaldi, and you know where you got your start as a kid, what were your interests, and um, how do you got into drumming, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I'd I'd be glad if you can share some of that with okay, us. Okay. Well,
0: uh, I was. Let's start here. I was born in Oakland, Oakland, California.
2: So you're originally from Oakland.
0: Well, you could say that, but I didn't grow up there. Yes, sorry. Uh, yes, I, I I didn't live there until later in my life, but was born there. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Pleasanton, California. Uh, my grandparents uh, were immigrants from Portugal and uh, Italy. Uh, grew up in a home where... My parents spoke those languages every day. Mm. and uh, but they didn't teach my brother and I. So my brother and I, I got Italian later on. My brother and I didn't get any of the language there. So we heard it every day. Mm-hmm. and we had all the cultural things. but the most important part of the culture we didn't get was the language. Mm-hmm. But still, it was really great growing up in that environment. You know, I still look back at it and think how cool it was how great all my relatives were. And, you know, I'm sure they were going through things that everybody goes through, but right. there was always a lot of joy, always a lot of, you know, friendly stuff going on, a lot of laughter and that kind of stuff, you know? So that's the things that I remember, uh, you know, growing up in my house and there was always music too. Uh, my parents really liked music, especially my mother. She played the piano she played by ear and, uh, you know, eventually she took some lessons and could read music and that sort of thing, you know, but she was always playing. And uh, then we'd have little family get-togethers and I had an aunt who could, you know, sing. She played the piano, so they'd have little sing-along things. And it was, it was always kind of fun, you know. Okay. So then when uh, fourth grade came around, that's usually the time in school where they bring you the, you know, the teacher comes, music teacher comes in and asks people who wants to be in the band. So. Right. Uh, The teacher comes in, he says, you know, who wants to be in a band here? Of course, I raised my hand, you know, as a lot of other kids did. And by the, you know, I wanted to play the trumpet. And so by the time they got to me, uh, all the trumpets were gone. And so, (laughs) and so they said, well, what about violin? So, oh boy. So I tried that. And of course, you know, no offense to anybody, but it sucked, you know. (laughs) And so I stopped playing for a while. You know, Mm -hmm. because that that just doesn't, didn't interest me. Violin was not something that I'd ever pictured myself playing. You know, (laughs) I still love trumpet players to this day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, so then when I was 10 years old, my mother was playing this recording, uh, called the Sabre Dance. And it was like, uh all this drums and all this other stuff in it, percussive, you know, percussive sounds and everything. And I thought, wow, this is really great. And she played it often. And I was always fascinated by it. So finally one day I said, well, I'd, I'd like to play the drums. So hmm. I went and I asked the music teacher, um, if I could, you know, try playing music again. He said, sure. She said, As I thought, told him I wanted to play drums. Well, you know, so I started in elementary school band and he was a, uh, very good teacher, but he was a yeller. He liked to yell mm, mm. and he did lots of it. And so <laughs> I didn't like that. And so I would go hide in the bathroom. And he, there was a couple other guys too that didn't like it. And so he would come and find us in the bathroom and then drag us over to the music room, you know, when it's time for our lesson and that kind of stuff. And know? yell at you. Yeah. And he's <laughs> like, you know, we go hide. So we try to avoid the yelling, you know. <laughs> And, uh, but I stayed with it and mm-hmm. it was just something that I was always doing. Yeah. Um, did all the, you know, concert band, marching band, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. then when I got in high school, I was 15, there was a, I walked in the band room and one day and there was a kid playing a drum set. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever been that close watching a drum set mm-hmm. and he was playing like kind of rock and roll beats. And he left the room. I sat down and I tried to do it myself and I was shocked that I could do it. Mm. And it was kind of effortless. I just played what I heard of what I Mm -hmm. heard, what I thought he was doing. And I did the same thing. And I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. You know, I could coordinate myself right away, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, kept going, um, got into drum set, played in the school jazz band, you know, um, My music teachers were really fantastic in high school. uh, Mr. Campana and Mr. Caviglia, two nice Mm. Italian boys. Yes. And uh, and when I was a senior in high school, we were getting ready to finish the year, and they came to me and they said, you know, you should seriously think about, you know, uh, going into music, you know. So they set me up with, talked to my parents. They set me up with a a man who was uh, in the Oakland Symphony. I won't say his name, but he was in Oakland Symphony, taught at Mills College. He had published works and he was a pretty, you know, reputable percussionist, timpanist, uh, you know, teacher. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, my dad arranged to get me lessons with him and I didn't like it. It was just very dry and I wasn't interested in practicing Mm -hmm. yet. Uh, I just like to play, you know, it was just fun to play. And to me, that wasn't fun, you know, having to practice this stuff that I, never thought was going to be of any interest or any mm-hmm. value at all. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I did a couple lessons and didn't practice. And he told my dad, you know, we should stop doing these lessons because he's never going to be never going to amount to very much musically. And so uh, my dad was sure. pretty cool about it. He sort of remember the, in the car on the way home, uh, we didn't really talk about it, but he never said anything. He never, discouraged me or anything like that he was always very encouraging and just kind of let me find my way you know that's the way my parents were uh they didn't you know when i told them i wanted to be a musician and stuff i'm sure they you know had some trepidation about it you Mm -hmm. know but they just encouraged me to keep doing uh, the thing that i was inspired to do and it Mm -hmm. was uh you know that really set the stage for For my life, you know, being able to make my own decisions, whether they're, you know, good or bad, you know, it was, they didn't interfere in that, in that, uh, you know, that process. And so I just continued to make my way as a, as a musician, I started playing in, in bands after high school. I had my own band. Uh, I was playing in a, in a, a jazz band with a a big band called the Sid Reese big band. They were Mm. Sid Reese had a music store in Livermore, California. And he had all these retired guys who were older guys were in it, and they were playing Glenn M- Miller music and all this stuff. And I got a chance to be the drummer through the piano teacher that I was studying with. Okay. And uh, so I couldn't even play an eight-bar solo. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. But they stuck with me. And they let me play. And I remember we did our first show on the back of a truck, big flatbed truck outside of his music store, and we got paid. <laughs> what say what?
3: money for this
0: <laughs> so that really um then i realized that i could make money playing the drums that sort of got things got me really really even more and more interested mm-hmm. and then i got drafted into the military oh yeah what branch army army but uh the the law was is that As long as you uh, enlisted prior to your draft date, you were fulfilling your military obligation and you didn't have to go in the draft, but you had to go in the military. So Mm -hmm. I enlisted in the Air Force as a clerk so that Hmm. I could get it out of the way and come back home and continue playing the drums. What year is this? This was
2: 1966.
0: Okay. And so um, I went in the Air Force and in basic training. one of the instructors comes around. He said, who plays Who plays a musical instrument? And I raised my hand. He said, you want to be in the band? I said, yeah. So he took me over and I auditioned uh, for the Air Force Band at Lackland Air Force Base uh, in San Antonio, Texas, where I was doing basic training. And I had already auditioned for the Seventh Army Band at the Presidio in San Francisco, and I was not good enough then to do it. So I thought, well, I'll do this audition and see how this goes. Yeah. I'm not sure this is going to go good either. Yeah. But then I did it. And when I got my, my orders for my first uh, duty station, which said, um, McCord Air Force Base, Tacoma, Washington, it said 724th Air Force Band. So, wow, really? So, you know, I got to continue, <laughs> continue doing music, you know, man. and so it just kind of went like that, you know, I were learned, you were you there for four years? I was there for three and a half years Three and a half years. And it was a a tremendous experience. I mean, I got to to play with a lot of really great young guys. We had an excellent uh, concert band. Um, That's when I really learned a lot about mallet percussion and started getting into that. Mm -hmm. Classical snare drum, uh, great drum set players. Um, The uh, section leader, percussion section leader, was a man named Jim Nolan, who eventually went to the United States air force band in Washington DC played timpani with them for years and years. And I believe he was the, he was the, the section leader percussion section leader for the air force band for many years. Mm. And, uh, taught me so many great things. He was just a really good guy, but could really play. And so I learned lots about playing in a big band, playing in small groups. Um, you know, just a lot about the finesse of playing different styles of music, um, the interpretation of different kind of styles of music, you know, how you do it, how you switch your brain around, mm-hmm. you know, when you do different things. And it was, it was really tremendous. You know, I got involved with local guys, you know, playing funk music, Mr. Charles and the entertainers. Ooh, Mr. In, Charles. In Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> and that was really fun, man. I had so many good times with those guys. Yeah. And they taught me a lot about that music. Uh huh. And it was really, really great. Mm hmm. Um, Then uh, I got out of school, or I got out of the military early to go to school. They gave you like a six-month early out. So I took that, went Mm -hmm. back to the Bay Area, and uh, got into school and that sort of thing, and then started playing around the Bay Area, and was subbing for a drummer in a band called The Reality Sandwich. This was in Oakland. And um, it was a band, was kind of hippie drug dealer band.
2: Yeah, it sounds like reality, reality sandwich, sandwich
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so also who was doing some subbing in the band at the time was Mike Clark, who, hmm. you know, um, we talked about him earlier. Yeah, headhunters. You know, yeah. got the gig with the headhunters and stuff. But this was before we were doing anything like that. Hmm. and uh
2: was he playing rock before that
0: he was playing that but he was like that time also a really great jazz drummer that was Hmm. really his thing as far as i'm concerned i mean he was the lead dog when that stuff was you know going on because Mm -hmm. he could just really do it well Uh and uh so you know we became very very friendly and one night when i was playing there two guys from the tower Tower of Power came in. Mick Gillette and Skip Mesquite both mm. have passed away. Yeah. Yeah. But they, um, invited me to come and check out the band. Come and say that we have to make a, a, a change, you know, in our drum chair. Would you be interested in coming to check it out? So I went and saw them. They were at the Keystone Corner in San Francisco up on Vallejo Street there in North Beach. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were doing like original music plus, um, uh, really obscure cover songs that nobody knew about unless all you the really side music Then you, you know, all the B side kind yeah. of stuff. So you, yeah. unless you knew that music, you'd never know what those songs right. were. But they were really cool and they were doing them kind of in their way, mm-hmm. you know, which made them sound original. Exactly. Like yeah. Exactly. And they already had a vibe going on. They had a really, really great, you know, sound already. Uh, there was just, you know, some kind of, Thing happening with them You look at them You hear them There was something going on there Rocco Was playing bass He was 18 And hmm. He was like sounding He was he, he was one of the reasons The band sounded so great Is because of his, The way he, he approached You know Rhythm and that kind of stuff And mm-hmm. some of the songs That they were doing too You know It was just was Cool bass songs You know Yeah Old school funk yeah. songs You know Howard Tate And all this stuff You know mm-hmm. And um <clears throat> So I had no no uh, hadn't met anybody, any guys in the band yet. I just was listening to them. But when I heard them, I knew that I was gonna be in it. I had no doubt, even before they knew, and then eventually, you know, soon after that I met Emilio and he invited me to come to play with the band. And they played and they they liked it. And here I am, here I am. in your right. music
2: room. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a pause for the calls right now. We'll be back in about two minutes with my guest, Mr. David Garibaldi.
4: Are you serious about your music? Are you ready to run with the big dogs? The experts at Pitbull Audio have the gear to get you into the game. From leading manufacturers like Mesa Boogie, Fender, Pioneer, and American Audio. To sound your best, you need the best. Pitbull Audio can deliver in rehearsal, on stage, and into the big time. Dropping beats, shredding guitar, or making the crowd roar. Whatever you dream, Pitbull Audio can help make it happen. We are Pitbull Audio. We want you to play it loud. PitbullAudio.com.
3: You know what's all around you every waking moment of your life? Marketing. You're choking on it. I'm Scott Robertson, and when it comes to strategic PR, branding, and marketing, I've seen it all. And actually, I'm still seeing it because bad marketing never sleeps. Join me each week on May the Best Brand Win right here on Talk Radio and learn how to make the marketing for your brand unforgettable.
1: I'm Tim Dolbear, the host of Sound Experience on Intertalk Radio. Each week, I talk with top professional audio engineers, producers, musicians, and the manufacturers that make the tools that we use in the studio each and every day. From capturing the perfect take to mastering your final release, and the tools and how the pros use them, we are going to dive deep into their process and learn from their experience. I look forward to you joining us each week on Sound Experience with me, your host, Tim Dolbear. This is
5: Jackie Bertoni from Jackie's Groove. Come join me weekly on my journey through the music business as I take you behind the velvet rope, interviewing industry notables such as Al Meola, Michael McDonald, and Al Jarreau, to name but a few. Listen to their stories on being in the studios recording number one hits and onto the stages throughout the globe. Allow me to be your music historian. You can hear me live every Monday at 2 p.m. and every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time or 24 seven on Jackie's Ready to get your groove on?
1: Welcome to Intersect Radio, where music, faith, and life
0: converge, with your host, Aaron the A-Train-Smith.
2: Welcome back, everybody. Here we are, Tuesday. I'm sitting here with David Garibaldi. Yeah, I know. I know. Eat your heart out. That first segment was great, man. Like you said, we went in, you went from being born to like
0: zero to 23 in 15 minutes.
2: <laughs> it's like, do you know yourself <laughs> or what?
0: Oh, man. <laughs> How many times have you told this story? Well, parts of it, but never, you know, in one big episode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm glad you're doing it here. And, um. So we were at, uh, you had just gotten into TOP and you knew you had the gig. Yeah. And, um, even happens? before I had, it, even before you had, yeah. It. yeah.
0: And then I got to play with them and, uh, it was a instant connect. Um, there was never a doubt as to whether I would be in it, you mm-hmm. know, um, I began working with the band. We began rehearsing. I think we did our, our kind of, so July 23rd, 1970 was my first gig with the band. Okay. In Lake Tahoe, California. And I think we played at the VFW Hall, something like that. And then we went up to the North Shore. We played this little restaurant, little bar called uh, The Stop. And The Stop was, of we did, we were there for several nights and, you know, we slept, we slept on the floor. floor. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, so, so we are getting, we're getting an echo. Yeah,
2: yeah. We're getting we're getting a a terrible, terrible echo. echo. Keep, going. Keep, going. Keep, going.
0: Keep, going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. All right. All right. So, so we slept, slept on, on the floor. floor. Um, um, Ignorance is bliss, right? right? Nobody cares when you're 23 years old and you're loving what you do. You, uh, you'll, sleep you'll sleep on, on the floor. Had we had all our gear in a van and all that stuff. It just, just kind of went, went there, from there, you know, we we, start we started rehearsing, rehearsing for uh, that first record that we did, East Bay, Greece, because the tower had um, won a record deal at the Fillmore West. Bill Graham had this thing called Sounds of the City, and they had won this recording contract, uh, sort of like it was like a battle of the band's. And it was on with a, a subsidiary of Atlantic Records called San Francisco Records. It was one of one of uh, Bill Graham's labels. He had two labels: Fillmore mm. Records and San Francisco Records. And so I think Cold Blood was on the Fillmore label, and we were, that was a CBS one. And then we were on the San Francisco Records, which was an Atlantic one. Mm. And so uh, I jo- So I joined the band in July. We start rehearsing, doing gigs, you know, tower style, you know, like blue collar man. It's like, you know, every day of the week you're either doing a gig or you're rehearsing or you're recording or you're doing something. You know, it's like yeah. it's a very labor-intensive sort of gig. It always has been that way. It's still that way today. Yeah. And so uh we began rehearsing and we started in September. We recorded East Bay Greece at Mercury Records. On Mission Street in San Francisco, Mm. and in November it was out. So, yeah. So these days, you know, (laughs) you do recordings. It's like you know this epic, you know, project that people do. We're just finished one ourselves. It takes a couple of years. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so in those days, it's like you record and then you put it out. I mean, it wasn't you know that other press it. You know, just do it, man. You know, the blemishes and all. Yep. And so that's what we did. And so um, then we started touring. I remember when we did our first tour, I think one of the first gigs was at the Fillmore East, you know, Fillmore East, and with Santana and Roland Kirk. Rashon Roland Kirk. Yeah. And so it was, uh, you know, our first trip to New York. And um, Santana, we, you know, we were already friends with them, you know, cause from the Bay Area and all that stuff. And so... I can't remember if we had toured with them yet. Maybe the tour was started later. Cause I met Michael Shreve became really friendly with Michael Shreve. And then he invited me to live at his house. And so we had this like little drum hang going on at his house and it was really, we had a really, really good time. And that's how we kind of hooked up with, with uh, Carlos and them. And they, you know, took us, you know, on the road with them. We did many, many dates with Santana. Mm. And so the Fillmore East gig, um, uh, we're all excited about it because, you know, Miles Davis had come because he was like, you know, friends with with um, Carlos. Right. and You know, he was kind of enamored with, you know, Carlos's thing and all that. And, you know, so I'm listening to Roland Kirk's set and I'm in the audience, right, standing, kind of standing on the side. And he's playing and, and pretty soon he tells the audience that they don't know anything about black music. And the audience starts to get really pissed off, really agitated. And they start responding to his, because he's taunting them. He keeps going on. And they keep saying, and they, they're they kind of in in a chorus, you know, the whole building's going, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Really. So they're going back and forth like this. And this is my first time in New York City ever experiencing something like this. I was absolutely stunned. He finishes his set, and they give him a standing ovation. I'd never wow. seen anything like that ever. So he insults them because uh-huh. he was obviously insulted by them, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And it was just back and forth going on. And he's playing all of his music, right? Mm-hmm. And then gets a standing ovation go. at the end. They, wow. they ate it up totally. He Full contact <laughs> concert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then also at at that time, like he had a, like an entourage of guys, kind of his little crew was, he had a guy that was, had a, like a long robe on with a shepherd's crook with bells Mm, on it and mm -hmm. stuff. And he'd kind of walk in front of, you know, Uh Rossan and the rest of the band with pounding the floor. And he was, he had a name. He was the minister of something. And we were like in shock, (laughs) man. I'd never seen, I mean, you know, we come from. Bay Area man, you know, Oakland. I mean, come on. You know, let's, yeah. you see a lot of stuff there, you know. <laughs> right. And but this was, was on, Roshan, Roshan.
2: was doing this three horn thing. Yeah, too, well, right? of course he is uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Monzello, Stritch, and all this other instrument, nose flutes and everything else. And yeah. he was doing his thing, you know, and he made a really great band, mm-hmm. killer band. And it was the first time I'd ever seen uh jazz musicians that were heroin addicts. His hmm. his piano player at the time. He would Play brilliant solos. And then when the solo was done, he'd put his hands in his lap and his head would go down and he'd nod, nod out. out. Wow. And so when it was time for him to play, he'd wake up and he'd play and it'd just be as vicious, as badass as possible. And then when it was done, and would go back to nodding out. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. So this wow. is like, you know, real education. You know, like for us, man, it was, it yeah. was really something. So, you know, it was, uh, our first, and then our first tour, the rest of the tour, it was, nobody knew about us. Uh, none of the records were in stores or any of this stuff, And you know, it was like that, but we persevered. And then we mm-hmm. had also had met, uh, met Doug Clifford who was the drummer with, uh, Creedence Clearwater. And he uh, had approached me to give him lessons at his house, secret lessons at his house. I'm sure he doesn't mind if I tell his story now. Secret yeah. lessons at his house in Kensington. He lives in Kensington, you know, the Berkeley Hills, right? Mm-hmm. And so, we're giving these lessons and stuff, and we we had a great time. He's a great, really great guy. We got along really well. And uh, he says one day, he says, Are "You guys interested in going on the road with us?" Hell yes. <laughs> So, our first two uh, wow. big major experiences on the road were with Creedence Clearwater mm-hmm. and with Santana, and so um, the playing kind of music that we played and kind mm-hmm. of like you know who was in the band, sort of you know like a mixed race band and that kind of stuff. And we, I remember we went to Shreveport, Louisiana, and Skip and I went to this little place to eat and it was like kind of like roaches kind of like started kind of crawled out from under the counter and the stuff and the woman behind the counter had a beard you know like it was just really like surreal man and then we do the gig right Mm -hmm. and of course we played when the lights were on people are filing in and we're Uh playing our music you know Uh skunk the goose and the fly and you know the price and back on the streets again and all this stuff you know and uh, people are throwing stuff at us, really. Yeah, they were throwing stuff at us. Who was singing leader Rick time? Stevens? Rick of Sings, yeah, Rick still Stevens. Because yeah. you know, Rufus at the time was gone already, he left early on because uh, he felt that he was getting stolen from, and so
1: hmm.
0: you know, he wanted his money, but there was no money to be had, yeah, so you know. Also, you know, God rest his soul, he's gone too. You yeah. Know? But yes. he was a really cool guy, you know. Yeah. He, but that's something that happened like yeah. early on. So when, when I first heard the band, there was at the Keystone Corner, Rick and Rufus were both in the band, but they wouldn't sing together because they didn't like each other. That's different. Yeah. So we had the band had two singers, right? So they sang, they didn't sing together like Sam and Dave or something. It wasn't (laughs) anything like that. So,
2: so they just sang whatever they sang on the record, they would sing sing on stage. So
0: Rick would sing Sparkling in the Sand and, Mm. you know, kind of other. That became his, his thing. It it did. And, you know, um, it was, it was really something, man. Wow. Man. Yeah. Back in the day,
2: those days, um, things were, I don't know if kids have those experiences now musicians, you know, when it was, um, it was like a wild frontier, you know, it was like things were being created, new things were being, are happening, you know, and, and, um, you just never knew, you know, what it was going to lead to, but you kind of had support to do it. You know, there was, there was a living wasn't as expensive, you know, um, you hang out with friends and, and it was just a new
0: experience. Well, you know, learning was, uh, you know, there was not YouTube. Right. And you know, there really, there wasn't that cassettes were just starting to happen. Mm -hmm. So there was records, right. Mm -hmm. And the radio. And so that was your kind of like your touchstone was, you know, those things. Mm -hmm. And so you got your records that you liked and, you know, tried to, listen as closely as you could to the recordings and, you know, pick out stuff. And if then, if you had the good fortune to see them in concert or stuff, they came through your town, you know, mm-hmm. that was a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, learning was, it was not YouTube, no internet. So learning was like on a regional, more regional local level, your friends, right. you know, your circle of friends, you exchange mm-hmm. ideas, you get together and play, mm-hmm. you know.
2: We used to do that all the time. Yeah. At, in the living room People at home. People come to my
0: house and yeah, we would yeah. play together and, you know, exchange yeah. drummer hangouts and practice together and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff, you know. So it was it was really, really fun, you know. And then the early 70s in the Bay Area was like, um, well, you know, I mean, it was a kind of like a gold rush, man. I mean, it was like a, the most unbelievable musical thing that was like all the record companies were there, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Graham. Know, was doing his thing with you know the Fillmore and, and other shows. There was tons of live music venues with people playing original music all over the place. There was like really unique players everywhere. It was like vir- virtuosity on a different, on a creative level, as opposed to like you know, like uh, uh, someone who is a classical musician or somebody who has really good mechanical skills. This was like a whole other thing. It was, I, I call it creative virtuosity because people were like, they were just doing things that they heard, you know, things right. that they felt. Right. And so you could go out every night and you could hear somebody do something in all these different styles of music that you never heard before, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and it was all really, really, really great. There was jazz, there was blues, there was the funk, there was the psychedelic music, there was Latin music, there was great jazz, there was everything,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm.
0: And so, that was the mix. And it wasn't all about in. the money,
2: you know?
0: Not really, you know. You know? Uh, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate, I guess, in that I never, well, I wouldn't call it fortunate. I would, I never worried about the money.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because I always had the feeling that, and kind of the, that I was going to be always working and I was always somehow going to, come out on the winning end of things, Mm -hmm. you know, if I would just do what I do. yeah, You know, that was always the thought was just do what I do and, you know, do it now and worry about it later, you know, that kind (laughs) of thing, you know. Um, And I never, I I didn't have those sort of concerns, you know, I know that it's, that's a tough thing for people, you know, when you try to feed yourself with art, right, Mm -hmm. it's the age old. Thing. That's why, you know, like the Renaissance and they, you know, patrons of the arts and all this other stuff, you know, and some of the great work. When you go to to Italy and you see all those of the great paintings and the, you know, Michelangelo and all these guys, you know, they had people supporting them, right. you know, like to do that kind of stuff, you know, so right. that art was able to live, you know, mm-hmm. for centuries.
2: Mm-hmm. And they were unfortunately more successful as dead people
0: than they were yes. living when, yes. when they and were that's creating the art, anything. the art thing, you know. Um, so when you have to feed yourself with your art, it puts a whole other level of pressure on people, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So with my students, you know, like I always ask them, you know, the, you know, are you okay with this? You know, you know, what is it that you want to do? You mm-hmm. know, give me your idea of what it is that you want to create, how, you know, how you want to do things, you know, when we go from there and, you know, we talk about, making a living doing music and all this stuff. And I encourage people, man, if you have uh, pressure, financial pressures that are interfering with your artistic life, then get a job, go do something to feed your family and mm-hmm. have art occupy the place in your life that it should, which is an enhancement, you know, something to make your life uh, enjoyable, a release, a creative release, you know right. and then figure out how to feed your family feed yeah. yourself you know that kind of stuff you mm-hmm. know there's nothing wrong with that no it's not it's not man that's
2: being responsible for the people who you're responsible Absolutely for so. is like definitely more important you know and if that's that's the way, route you're going to go then you got to be aware of of that yes. commitment yes. you know it's like a double commitment you know you, you don't want to abandon the things you love but you love these people; these are real people. And um, once you make that commitment to them, you should be in. That's correct. Yeah. All right, we're going to be back, folks. I'm here with David Garibaldi. Yes.
1: This is Tim Dolbear, host of Sound Experience here on Intertalk Radio, and SourceConnect by Source Element is the essential tool that we use to link between my studio in Austin, Texas and the WS radio station in San Diego. Now, with SourceConnect, not only can we communicate in real time and with HD audio, but it's synced up and is of a high enough quality that I can use it for real-time ADR work, remote recording and overdubbing, and it even allows me to remotely control a DAW. SourceConnect by Source
3: Element, affordable high-quality audio and video connection over the internet for all of your production needs. You know, what- what's all around you every waking moment of your life marketing you're choking on it I'm Scott Robertson and when it comes to strategic PR branding and marketing I've seen it all and actually I'm still seeing it because bad marketing never sleeps join me each week on May the Best Brand Win right here on Intertalk Radio and learn how to make the marketing for your brand unforgettable
5: make this your vinyl night I'm John J.R. Robinson, and every week, music creation comes alive through stories, experiences, and sounds. When vinyl records filled our hearts and minds, my friends and I share our tips and techniques used in creation of iconic tracks for recording artists such as Michael Jackson, Eric Clapton, Quincy Jones, and Steve Winwood, to name a few. Vinyl has emerged hot, and the soul of vinyl defines art and passion, which burns deepest at night. Tune in every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on EnterTalkRadio.com.
4: Are you serious about your music? Are you ready to run with the big dogs? The experts at Pitbull Audio have the gear to get you into the game. From leading manufacturers like Mesa Boogie, Fender, Pioneer, and American Audio. To sound your best, you need the best. Pitbull Audio can deliver in rehearsal, on stage, and into the big time dropping beat, shredding guitar or making the crowd roar. Whatever you dream, Pitbull Audio can help make it happen. We are Pitbull Audio. We want you to play it loud. Pitbullaudio.com.
1: Welcome to Intersect Radio, where music, faith and life
0: converge with your host, Aaron The A-Train-Smith.
2: Welcome back, folks. We're here with Mr. David Garibaldi, and uh, Dave's given us quite the rundown of his uh, <laughs> his his life here, man. I'm just sitting here in silence and just taking it all in. We were
0: stuck on 23, though. That's what we... A lot happened when it, when I was 23.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that was a whole lifetime at 23 right there. Yeah. 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 But, um, you know, Dave, I, I know that you're a believer in Christ and um, I would really appreciate it if you would share with the audience um, just what was going on before your encounter with Christ and after and how it affected you, changed your life, that mm-hmm. sort of
0: thing. Well, um, you know, I grew up in like a, you know, Catholic home, you know, Italian, Portuguese people, you know, Catholic, predominantly Catholic. So I grew up in that and, you know, went to the church when I was a kid and did all of the, you know, communion and confirmation and all those things, you know, mm. then kind of got away from it. <clears throat> but always sort of had sort of like spiritual beliefs. So I always believed in. God and Jesus Christ and all that stuff, you know, for some reason that just always kind of stayed with me. And then uh, when I joined Tower and we started getting into, you know, a lot of dope and, you know, stuff like that, as soon as we made money, it seemed like everything else came along with it too, you know, the Mm. abuse and all that stuff. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we had like pretty serious drug addicts and alcoholics we had heroin addicts and alcoholics and the people that are around us were like that so we were kind of like uh we were a band a little family a weird little hippie family but it was also like a gang it was like you know it was like a <laughs> bunch of little gangster dudes you know who happened to play music too and all the people around us were like that uh-huh. and um It was, it got to be where I just, I couldn't deal with it. So that's when I first left the band. And I had met, uh, I think in the the year that I I, had left, uh, right before I was going to leave, I had met some Christian people from Alameda, California. And it was this uh, man named Howard Uramian, and he had a music store uh, in Alameda. And he was uh, a Christian guy. And they got me involved with uh, their Bible fellowships and stuff. And it really changed my life. It was the first time I'd met people like that who were so open and so cool and were willing to, to help me. Mm -hmm. And because I was kind of, I was kind of lost in a way because I didn't have any friends. I wanted to be in the tower. Tower was like something. It was like a dream to be in a band like that. And it just was very discouraging and hurtful that with all the ability and all the talent that God has given us, that it was being wasted, uh, by getting loaded
1: Mm.
0: because the getting loaded thing became the first thing. Music Mm -hmm. was second. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I left because it just, um, it, it, we were losing our, our thing, you -hmm. know, we were repeating ourselves. We were not nice to each other. It was like a little drug gang, you know? And when you're not into that, the people around you, they isolate you. Yeah, they do. Because, you know, you're the one that's, that's wrong. Because they right. don't want to be told right. that they're, you know, uh, the one with the problem and messing right. things up. You it's know, a guilt trip, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, anyway... Um, this was right before Urban Renewal. We were in the mm. process of recording Urban Renewal. And I remember telling the band that it was I had to leave. And I said, my reasons, my reasons why. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard to do that because that was, I loved all those guys. They were my brothers. We, you know, had done so many things together, made such great music, and really things were moving upward for us. But... Their drug habits kept them from really being uh, as successful as they could have been. Mm. And so for you know the, their, their, it's like the, their growth was like stunted socially, you know, from you know, all the years of uh, drug abuse and alcohol and that kind of stuff. So anyway, I just continued on without them and you know, continued going to these Bible fellowships were really helpful to me. I even had one in my house. I ran one in my house for a long, long time in LA and, um, you know, was able to help a lot of people and Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And even one year I worked for uh, a Christian ministry. I did that for a year.
2: In Um, what capacity? Music. Mm -hmm.
0: And, um, after that, uh, went back to, LA, continued on, you know, doing music there, which wasn't really enjoyable. So I needed something, you know, like faith, you know, really helped me get through that period because it wasn't an enjoyable place to me musically. You know, music was still Mm -hmm. a big part of my life. And Mm -hmm. I even considered, you know, getting out of music because the music scene in In L.A. was so kind of antagonistic and and kind of anti-music in a way. You know, Mm -hmm. there wasn't any bands. Mm -hmm. There was only freelance people. and Studio guys. Studio guys. It was a small group of studio people. And I, you know, got to do a lot of really good stuff. But people talked about each other a lot. And, you know, if you weren't working enough, that was... You couldn't tell anybody that. So you had to have this pretend thing that you were this busy dude and doing all these sessions and all this stuff and you're doing nothing, you mm-hmm. know? And there were many, many guys like that, but that was the prevailing attitude, right? Yeah. And it was just kind of, it was this phony, yeah, you know? Yeah. And then I'd go sit with guys like Joe Percaro, you know, who's like Yoda, <laughs> and he just have such a balanced sort of perspective about everything. You know, it was just a wonderful thing sitting with somebody like him. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember I had all these questions about studying because it, you know, studying in LA was, you know, there was all these teachers and in each teacher, of course they tell you, this is the shit. And if you don't do this, you, you don't have it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So they all had that. So I would kind of, we were talking with Joe one time, you know, and, and about this. And he said, well, you know, why don't you just study with everybody and then make up your own thing, you know, with everything that you've mm-hmm. learned from all these people. And I never had considered that before, believe it or not. And, you know, so that was a, that was a big moment, you know, but, you know, getting back to the, just one of them. We could have talked about L.A. for a long, long time, let's <laughs> let's we're we're getting off the message here. But the thing is, is that you know, uh, my faith and kind of like my uh, spiritual life kind of has always been really important to me. And even in, especially in the last few years, I remember when I got a divorce, my my first marriage, and there these Christian people that I was hanging with, they decided that I wasn't being very Christian and doing this. And so they stopped talking to me. Mm -hmm. I'm going, wait a minute. The Bible teaches love, you know, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, he talked about, you know, to love one another and that the first commandment was love. Mm -hmm. Right. And that love was the fulfilling of the law. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all the old Testament judgment and all those things that, you know, that, that, people were levying against each other and the way that God even dealt with people was all changed when Jesus Christ came. And then there was, you know, he was the redeemer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he said that love was the fulfilling of the law.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. That's pretty simple, isn't it? You know, so that passes all sorts of ethnic social background. I mean,
1: if people were to do
0: that, I mean, that's the way to live, right? Mm-hmm. You just you just dig each right. other, yeah. you know, accept each other. And so I thought, okay, these people are like, they're judging me now because I have this problem and I don't want to stay in this relationship that's not a healthy one. Uh, I had a daughter. I was really concerned about how that was going to go. But at the same time, as I looked down the road and saw kind of what was, you know, what my life might be like if I stayed in there and it was just toxic. I couldn't mm-hmm. do it, you know, so I moved on. Mm-hmm. And I believe that it was, you know, God helped me to get out of the situation so that I could get my life straight and, you know, have peace. Yeah. I, you know, in a way, I guess it's kind of weird because our family got, just, you know, broken up, which is never a good thing but I can also look back on it and see what decisions that I made that I probably shouldn't have made that I could have avoided that, Mm -hmm. you know, but hindsight Mm -hmm. is always twenty twenty, Right. (laughs) And so anyway, during this time, I, I just kind of decided that I was going to not worry about these Christian people and I was just going to pray and I was going to believe what I'd been taught to have a spiritual relationship with God that's just you and God, right? And that God will answer your prayers. So I just took it down to that level, one-on-one, you know? And I just prayed and believed God for inspiration about what to do to improve my life, right? Mm -hmm. And I swear, from that moment on, I've just felt that my life elevated. I could feel myself changing. Mm-hmm. You know, by accepting that and making that decision, you know, and so no matter what I've done that has been good or bad, God is always there with me mm-hmm. right. And so I always pray, and if I do something stupid, God's there with me. I know he' forgives me, yeah. you know, and people are gonna do people are gonna do stupid stuff, right That's what we do, you know. Yeah. we just just sheep. We're sheep. Yeah. We just do stupid stuff. And so, but through it all, uh, you know, God has continued to bless my life. I have a great family. And now, uh, I married again, you know, many years ago and a, a great son and still have a great relationship with my daughter
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, uh, I have a boy, he's 12. Mm. He's a beautiful little guy. Um, I have my music life again. I got to be back in the Tower of Power, mm-hmm. uh, which was something that I missed, mm-hmm. you know, terribly. Yeah, because it was the only place really that I felt comfortable musically. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've kind of learned how to move forward in life and to be happy about stuff, be blessed, you know, be mm-hmm. have gratitude, right? Yeah. Then in in twenty fifteen, I was just kind of as a little side I was a runner for many years I ran miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. I really? loved it you know and so in 20 I think 2012 or 2014 something around that period of time I had trained for a half marathon I did this half marathon trained and did the whole nine yards and I trained while I was on the road too so we were doing gigs and then I'm going out and doing all these long runs every day and all this stuff You know, it was really fun. It was challenging, but it was really fun. Yeah. So I did the race and afterward, my legs never recovered. And that had never happened before. Right. So I just had all this pain and stuff and I tried everything. So I eventually I went to an orthopedic doctor and he said, well, you have arthritis in your right hip. It's bone on bone. You're probably going to have to have that replaced. And then the left one is on its way out. And so you're probably going to have to have that one replaced too. Mm -hmm. And he was very matter of fact about it. And I'm going, say what? <laughs> Hip replacements. That's not something I oh. thought about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I tried everything that I could to get Avoid past it. that. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And eventually, uh, I think we were touring with Journey. And it was a, we were out in the summer. Tons of gigs. And I realized that I was losing my mobility. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get fixed. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So. It was kind of a big decision, you know, it's a pretty major surgeries. I had no idea what was going to happen and I had to have both my hips replaced. So I did that in 2015, January, and then in the summer, June.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: So I didn't know how that was going to go, you know, because all of a sudden you're on like totally active playing, touring around, you know, on what we call the the million gig March. (laughs) And so I, I, didn't know if I was going to be able to go back to it.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: And so um, I started healing up from those things, and saw that I was going to be okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So eventually, it'd been that later that year, I went back to work. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in uh, last year, uh, January twelfth, um, my friend Mark and I, we we're at Yoshi's in Oakland, and we. We're getting ready to go to work. Waiting across the street, train goes by, and we get hit. the The accident was pretty traumatic. I mean, we we got really hurt pretty bad. I'd never mm-hmm. been hurt like that. Mark almost lost his life. He was in a coma for about eight weeks, mm-hmm. and um, I'd never been that hurt ever. I my whole face was broken. My jaw um, was bruised from head to toe. I couldn't walk. My Wife had to feed me and help me put my clothes on and this kind of thing. And so it was, um, it just required a lot of, a lot of patience because I didn't, it wasn't something I was expecting to happen.
2: Yeah. Um, you know,
0: I um, thought not. But um, it did. And so I remember I just was talking to God you know, and I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but. Whatever it is, you know, I want to be able to accept it, whatever, however it goes down. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I had peace with that. You know, my mom, I I learned that from my mom. My mom lived to be 99. She just passed away this last year. But Mm. in the later years of her life, you know, she was able to, she was a believer and she was able to kind of like assess things and then move on, you know, she was kind of like letting stuff go, you know. So it didn't, she didn't carry things forward like anger and animosity, and you mm-hmm. know all this other stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And she lived really great life all the way up until the end. She just kind of cruised off into eternity, you know, with no, nothing bad, yeah. You know, yeah. and so, um, <clears throat> she just told me that that was a big thing, you know. I remember when she was ninety five, she told me that. It says I'm a believer, and you know, I've let things go. You know, I don't have animosity about anything, you know, and that was really a big deal. She also said she laughed a lot. She had good nutrition and she gave me a list, a little list of things that, you know, got her to ninety five that she wanted me to know about. You know. Okay. And so, <laughs> you know, uh I there was like a cut there's a couple Bible verses that I always bring round, they're always in my heart for some reason, you know, that, you know, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then there's the Timothy verse, you know, I think it's one seven, you know, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And, uh, you know, that, that, I believe that the Bible is the, you know, the basic principle motivational tool for living a really, really great life. It's all in there. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, when you read, like, I love motivational books. I love all that stuff because mm-hmm. it just helps you to arrange your thinking, Right. you know, and that none of those things are at cross purposes with God's word. Mm-hmm. It's all in there. Right. The principle mm-hmm. of faith or fear, you know, how you, what you believe, mm-hmm. you know, how your thoughts, your thought life directs where your life goes, mm-hmm. you know, so that's a process. And that's so I'm learning how to do that. I'm learning how to accept, how to be peaceful, you know, how to be blessed and happy in, you know, all the situations of life that I find myself in. And especially after this, you know, last, uh, you know, thing, you know, I was able to walk away from getting hit by a train.
2: Yeah. Not too many people do that.
0: And I remember being yeah. at home after about six weeks and I was able to put my pants on myself. It might sound kind of stupid, but no. that was kind of a big, it was a big moment. I realized I was going to be okay. Seriously. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, this is going to be, this is what about
2: be. your hips. You're just getting brand new hips.
0: Yeah. Well, they, they got a little messed up in the, mm-hmm. you know, nothing broken. You know, I didn't have any neurological damage, no broken bones, except the stuff in my face, which, you know, mm-hmm. they fixed. And, uh, it showed me, uh, an MRI of my head in the hospital. I look like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, you know, <laughs> to get all this stuff in your head, you know, and so, but I'm just, you know, I'm blessed and thankful, man. I'm thankful that I'm here, um, that I'm able to be here with you today, uh, be, you know, able to be on the road with the, the band that I love playing with, you know, and with the Baddest guys. Baddest band in the land. You know, it's just a blessing, man. I mean, I have a great family, my friends, you know. um, There's a lot to be thankful for. Yeah. Lots. Yeah. So I try to live that way, you know, just be generous with my words and with my life, you know, to try to help people. And I believe that God inspires that.
2: Yeah, definitely. He definitely does. Man, well. I'm glad you're here, too.
0: You know, <laughs> thank you for having I'm me. I'm
2: glad you're here, too. Yeah, there were a lot of us that were very concerned, you know. Me, too. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I bet. And um, I, I, I'm i really uh, thankful and grateful to you for taking the time out of your day oh, to come here. It's and, my pleasure. And, and hang and tell us about yourself. And um, I want to thank you personally for, uh, for inspiring. you Inspiring a young drummer back in the 70s, and you know, and uh, <laughs> and um, you know, I'll never forget that, I've never forgotten it, and I always reflect back on it. You know, um, sometimes when I have that, that why question, you know, it's like, why do I do this, and why do I still, you know, I still love to practice, you know. It, Once a drummer, always a drummer. Yeah. And and I go, why? You know, and I I look back on my life and I always end up sitting behind you, you know. That's that's my first real exposure up close. I heard
0: you play, so you don't have to sit behind
2: anybody. (laughs) To another drummer, you know, and going, wow, you know. and and witnessing the band, you know, and seeing Lenny Pickett dance around and Lenny Williams singing great. And you guys, you know, it was just a, you know, it was like that. And and, uh, so it always inspired me to want to do that too, you know, go there. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. And
2: folks, you got to go see Dave play,
0: you know. You can't sit behind me, but you can come. Yeah, you can't sit behind me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> None of that. But go check him out, man. He's killing it. He's killing it in the Tower of Power. It's the baddest band in the land. And um, if you've never seen him, you need to change that quickly. <laughs> okay. All right, Dave, thank you so much. All right. God bless All you, right. friend. God bless you, too.
5: This is Jackie Bertoni from Jackie's Roo. Come join me weekly on my journey through the music business as I take you behind the velvet rope interviewing industry notables such as Al DiMeola, Michael McDonald, and Al Jerome, to name but a few. Listen to their stories on being in the studios recording number one hits and onto the stages throughout the globe. Allow me to be a music historian. You can hear me live every Monday at 2 p.m. and every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time 24-7 on Jackie's Ready to get your groove on? Hi,
1: this is Tim Dolbear from Eclectica Studios. I'm a full-time mixing and recording engineer. I work with Grammy winners, labels, and indie artists, using state-of-the-art digital mixing and restoration tools and the very best in analog gear. Really, though, it's my ability to bring tracks to life and fulfill your vision for your music. This has made me sought after by producers and artists worldwide. So spend your time working on music and not chasing a mix down a rabbit hole.
3: Go to timdolbear.com and check out our free one-song mix offer. You know what's all around you every waking moment of your life? Marketing. You're choking on it. I'm Scott Robertson, and when it comes to strategic PR, branding, and marketing, I've seen it all. And actually, I'm still seeing it because bad marketing never sleeps. Join me each week on May the Best Brand Win right here on Intertalk Radio and learn how to make the marketing for your brand unforgettable.
4: Are you serious about your music? Are you ready to run with the big dogs? The experts at Pitbull Audio have the gear to get you into the game. From leading manufacturers like Mesa Boogie, Fender, Pioneer, and American Audio. To sound your best, you need the best. Pitbull Audio can deliver in rehearsal, on stage, and into the big time. Dropping beats, shredding guitar, or making the crowd roar. Whatever you dream, Pitbull Audio can help make it happen. We are Pitbull Audio. We want you to play it loud. Pitbullaudio.com.